And Jesus said to us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But, but listen to what else he says. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? I think before we can really understand this, we need to understand what salt is. Now, I know in, in, uh, in today's modern world where we have refrigeration, we typically think of salt as basically a seasoning. I cooked a bunch of steaks for some friends yesterday. Some of them are here. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I put salt on the steaks, but I put the salt on the steaks because it tastes good. I didn't put it on there because I was thinking I'm going to preserve this meat. No, my plan is to put it in the refrigerator uh, after I cooked it, and then it was going to be fine, right? And it lived in the refrigerator before I cooked it, and it was good. And, uh, uh, but, but I put salt on it because I like the taste of salt. It really brings out the flavor. Let me tell you, if you put some salt on a steak with some pepper and garlic powder and just leave it out on the counter for about an hour, trust me, it, it'll, be, it'll be safe. You won't get germs because you're going to cook it anyway, you know? But, like, it just, like, almost... It, it, it creates a crust on the meat. It's, it's, it's very, very gorgeous, I'm just saying. Um, you know, and yes, I called that beautiful. That's beautiful to me, okay, of a perfectly seasoned steak. But, uh, but salt, historically, is, has been a preservative because what does it do? It, it kills germs. You ever had a, a paper cut and, uh, and, and then you were messing around with some salt and some got into your cut? You ever had that happen? How does that feel? It's painful. It's not enjoyable. If you put salt on a wound, it burns, but that burning is good for you. That's what we don't realize. That burning is good for you. We oftentimes react to the pain. Oh, I don't like that. We don't deal with pain very well in America. Uh, I, I uh, had a, just a weird experience over the past couple of weeks. I had somehow hyperextended my big toe on my, on my left foot. How you do that, I don't know. I'm not a gymnast or anything, but somehow I hyperextended my big toe. And it was so it was like sprained, you know, and it was, it was very uncomfortable. But then I was walking funny. And, and after walking funny for a few days, guess what happened? Then my ankle started to hurt. And I, then I developed a sprain in my ankle. And then finally, when that started to go away, I was mowing the backyard and I stepped in a hole that my son dug and I sprained the other side of the ankle. And then before you know it, like, I'm all kinds of messed up. And then as that sprain started to heal, I had been walking on my foot so funny that then uh, the little bone, like, behind your pinky toe started to get inflamed. And then I had another injury. There was some medical name for it. I don't know what it is. I just, I just said my foot hurts. And so this week I have taken my fair share of aspirin. I'll just say that. And I have put a whole lot of cream on my foot. And it's doing okay this morning. I've discovered boots are good. I, f I forget how great boots are. Um, I'm well protected as well, you know, so that's a good thing. But, you know, it's, it, I, I don't deal with pain that well, honestly. Like, it's a little bit of pain. And I'm like, okay, load me up on the aspirin. If it gets much more than this, I may need to go to the doctor and get some of the good stuff. And I'm just talking about an ankle sprain here, you know. But, but I just, I don't deal with it very well. And we as Americans really struggle with that idea. And so like one small little bit of pain, one little inconvenience, and we are, uh, we, we are just ready to go find the drug that's going to work, you know. Um, I experience this sort of a reaction um, to pain, by the way, every time my little girl Rachel gets a cut. 
this, this child is, I mean, absolutely afraid of rubbing alcohol or hydrogen peroxide. Okay, like I'm talking dreadfully afraid. This is her worst nightmare. She, she doesn't even have a cut on her body, and I pulled a rubbing alcohol out for me, not to drink it, I promise you, I'm not that kind of guy, um, but like to put on somewhere that hurts or that, that, that has a wound, and my, my daughter's like, Daddy, you're not going to treat my boo-boo, are you? I'm like, you don't have a boo-boo, you're okay. I mean, you want to see how fast that kid can run, pull out the rubbing alcohol when she has a cut. I have never seen anything move faster. They say cheetahs are the fastest land animal. I say no. My daughter, when I pull out the rubbing alcohol, and it's for her. Because oftentimes my little girl is more afraid of the cure, which can help her, than she is of the potential for the infection, which will hurt her in the long run. It's because she's afraid of the momentary pain even though that momentary pain is good. You know, when you, when you hurt yourself, when, like when my ankle is sprained, boy, I don't like it. But I also realize that inflammation means my body is trying to cushion the injury so it can heal. And so in a sense, that is good pain, even though it's horrible. Also, it keeps me from doing something stupid and putting too much weight on an injured place, you know. The body's reacting. God created it to work this way. I know that in my head. But, but when the pain comes, my word, I just, I... I I can't handle it. I'm, I realize how much weaker than my wife I am. She's given birth to four kids, um, I, you know, and three of them, she didn't even take any drugs. She's literally Wonder Woman, okay? But, um, but I, you know, the reality is we really struggle with that idea of, of the momentary pain. And I think that it's simply human nature. Most people prefer the sin that kills them to the bloody cross which can save them because if we have to confront our own sin, that's painful. When you look at a, a bloody Jesus up on the cross, what, what that tells me is I'm actually far worse than I ever thought I was. Right? We don't like to think of ourselves as that way. No, we're modern people, aren't we? We're modern people. We're not so bad. We've learned a few things. We've got philosophy and science and humanism. We're not so bad. But when we look at the bloody cross, we can't help but to realize that if perfect Jesus, if my sin did that to perfect Jesus, I haven't even come close to understanding how bad things really are. And so we tend to prefer our sin. Because if we stay in our sin... We stay in our brokenness. We don't have to face our sin. We just kind of live like it's not that big of a deal. My grandmother used to always say, and my, my dad will laugh because it was his mom, she'd have the, these like, you know, health conditions that was like, you should probably go see a doctor. Oh, well, some things you can just live with. It's like, well, your leg's dislocated. Maybe you should go to the, no, no, I'll be okay. I'll just use a, I'll, I'll, I'll just sit down a lot, which was cool with her. She liked to watch TV and eat cookies. But I mean, you know, for real, but like, like, you know, like, no, some things you shouldn't just live with. And sin is one of those things you shouldn't just live with, even if it's more comfortable to you. Now, the only reason sin is ever comfortable with us is because we're broken. We need to be fixed. We are like our father, Adam. We reach out for something outside of God to bring us satisfaction. And we find that once we've fallen all the way down the rabbit hole, Wonderland isn't as pretty as we thought it was going to be. It's not a Wonderland at all. It's got a Jabberwocky. 
the devil. <laughs> Anyways, um, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, if, if you haven't seen that Disney movie or read the book, you, you need to read Alice in Wonderland. You'll, you'll understand that. Uh, but it, it, is, it is human nature. Um, and, and, and so when we as followers of Christ bring the message of the gospel that you must turn away from yourself and from your sin and believe in Jesus in order to be saved, people are very offended at the deepest core of who they are by that message. And that shouldn't be that surprising to us. Because there was a point in each of us, most likely, now some of us were saved as really little kids, and we may not remember, but there was some point in our lives where we had to face the gospel, and it wasn't very comfortable. I remember the, the first time, I, I grew up in church, but I remember the first time the gospel was real to me. That was, a, that was hard. It was not a particularly happy moment at first. I started to realize that I'm not the person I thought I was in my head. It, it's not easy. And so when we bring that message of grace and salvation, it's not always received well. But that's not a reason for us, by the way, to go into hiding or to hold our faith inside of ourselves and keep that from people. And yet that's what so many Americans do today. We're so afraid of offending anybody with the message of the gospel that we just kind of, we just kind of hide. Keep it to ourselves. But listen to what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. You know what that tells me? If you're not feeling a little pressure from the world, maybe you're not living a godly life in Christ. And I'm not saying that we're all going to experience the kind of persecution that Paul experienced. But I'm saying if you're not feeling a little bit of pushback from the culture, maybe you're towing a little bit too much of the culture's line. Listen to what else Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What does that mean? It means people who don't know Jesus, when they hear your message, they are going to view it as foolishness. But how oftentimes, as believers, have we just said, oh yeah, whatever, just agree to disagree, and we just kind of back down and let the world be the loudest voice at the table. That's one of the biggest problems we face today. I've mentioned this several times. Lately, it's like, it's like if we Christians would raise our, the level of our voices, I'm not saying we should go yelling at people and like throwing King James Bibles at them or something like that. Um, don't do that. Don't throw Bibles anyway, okay? But um, but because but, we, we ought to always, I mean, Paul says that we ought to always have our speech seasoned with salt, right? That's important. So we ought to be gracious in the way we talk to people. But that doesn't mean we have to bow down to the way this world thinks, the words this world speaks, the stupid comments people make on Facebook. <laughs> we don't have to bow down to those things. You know, we want to be gracious. We want to be kind. I don't want to be a jerk. I don't want to use their methods. You know, I mean, the ends, we, we, this is an old cliche, but the end does not justify the means, right? Like, so I'm not going to use the world's tactics to bring down the world. I want to use the grace of Jesus. The Bible says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So if we're not kind, people aren't going to understand the goodness of God. So we want to be kind. They want to, we want to show graciousness. But the reality is when we, when we face up against the world that doesn't believe the same gospel message we believe, they don't buy into the bloody cross and the empty tomb, we're going to face opposition. And, and so these things are true. 
But if we care about Jesus, and if we care about this broken world, then I think that we, and, if, and also the other thing is if we understand who we truly are, Jesus declares, you are the salt of the world. Do you understand that? That's, that's, that's part of your identity. It is who you are. Why? Because Christ has declared it over you as a Christian. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are a preservative. Everywhere where you are, it's like the grace of God is being shaken out onto rotting meat to preserve it. That's how it's supposed to work. So if we understand, if we care about Jesus and we care about this broken world and we care about broken people and we know who we are, we have got to get out into this world with our message and our faith-shaped works. It's really important. There are two ways that salt can become ineffective, and we're going to see those displayed today. But um, I'll just go ahead and lay these out for you. The first one is that if, if the salt takes on the flavor and properties of something other than Christ. In other words, if it stops tasting like salt, then it's no good anymore. But the other thing is if it's kept in storage. It's not good, right? It's no good unless you put it on something. And, and all throughout Scripture, we can see examples of believers being salt. I mean, it's not just the New Testament either. It's back in the Old Testament. Actually, that's where we're going to go for our example today, to the Old Testament, because I want to look at some of the prophets. And here's, here's where my mindset is on this. I want to go back to the days when Israel was conquered, when Judah was conquered and taken into captivity. Here's why. Because I believe that the church today, we have to think of ourselves less like Israel in the homeland. For so long, I think we believers, in, in many ways, we've thought of ourselves in this country as, as a Christian nation, and we're just Christians. We're just holding up the banner. I don't know if that was ever true or not. I mean, if you look back in history, there's plenty of brokenness. But I, I do think there was a time, especially around the Great Awakening, where more people were Christians than they are today, for sure. And more of those Christians were spirit-filled, by the way, than they are today. I can guarantee you that. So I don't know, you know, I mean, the Bible even says, don't go saying, hey, the former days were better than these, you know. I mean, we can all get into that trap. But, but here's the reality. This has always been a broken place. This world has always been a broken place. This, and, and America's not Israel. Israel's Israel. And we are a part of the new Israel in Christ. But so oftentimes I think we've thought, man, here we are. We, we, we talk about Oklahoma being the Bible Belt, the buckle of the Bible Belt. This is, it's like, this is God's country. And by the way, it is when compared to Texas. But, you know, like, it's, this is not the promised land, right? When, when the story is over, when, when, when everything is over and God sets things straight, you know, we're going to be living in Jerusalem, right? With Jesus, not going to be here. I mean, we might come hang out here. I mean, I'm sure it's going to be a nicer place then. Um, but, but we're, you know, we're going to live in Jerusalem in the holy city with him. So this is not the promised land. In fact, Jesus is the true promised land. If we, if we want to get real serious about what the writer of Hebrews tells us, he's our true Sabbath rest. And wherever he is is where we want to be. But I, I don't want to go too much into that. But, but, um, but we need to view ourselves less like we're like, like Israel in the homeland and more like Israel in exile. Because we are a holy nation and we are not in our homeland. We're dispersed throughout the world. 
and we're living amongst people who are far from God. And so today, I'm going to look a little bit into some words that Jeremiah wrote. Well, he didn't write it, but he spoke it, and his scribe wrote it. Um, but anyway, this, this is a, essentially a letter, a prophetic letter that Jeremiah wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to those who were going into exile. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Jeremiah in chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to see these, these uh, elements of salt at play. And we're going to read the first 14 verses of this. And, uh, and I would highly encourage you, read the rest. Read the context, maybe. You know, if the Lord puts it on your heart, go back and read uh, several uh, chapters around this, maybe even the whole book. You know, we don't realize this, but oftentimes in, those, in the days when, when, when these things happen, this would have been read in huge sections at a time, right? Because these were essentially prophetic words that were written out, and the whole part would be read at one time. So not necessarily the whole book, because it's kind of a patchwork of several things. But, uh, but anyway, big, reading big chunks of Scripture can be really good for you. Here's what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and the priests and the people that, and, uh, sorry, and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So let's understand the context. Jeremiah is writing a letter to the Christians who are in, or Christians, to the Jews who are in exile in Babylon. Okay? This was after King Jeconiah. I never say this, that guy's name right. King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, and the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and, uh, and uh, Jemariah, I, I should know, I should, really should practice these. I always forget it. Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah the king sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And here's what it said. Let's pay careful attention. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem, to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. And thus, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will, I will fulfill uh, to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to this place from where I sent you into exile." This is the word of the Lord. Um, can we give God praise for his word this morning? Thank you, Jesus. 
Okay, so you may be asking, well, what in the world does this have to do with everything you just said about salt? It has a lot to do with it because the people of Israel were in a very similar situation to what we are in today. Again, this culture that we live in is increasingly secular. It's increasingly godless. They had been transferred from a land where essentially, well, God's design was that he would be king. Remember that part? Then they demanded their own king. Long story. But, uh, but they were transferred from a land in which God was clearly the sovereign into a land in which there were many gods and a king who declared himself to be a god. And it was their job to worship the one true God in that environment. It really sounds familiar to me. It feels familiar, you know, because the God of this land is secular humanism. It's, it's a world where, uh, where we, we're creating a, a world that, that's essentially a lot of the values of the kingdom, but we don't want to bow down to the king. We like some of the things Jesus says. We like the things that we like, but then when he says something hard, we're kind of like, eh, everybody likes to say, judge not lest you be judged, you know, people like that, but they don't like repent and believe the gospel be destroyed essentially you know what I mean like they they like some of what Jesus said they don't like other parts and so they're just kind of it's it's like a grab bag uh, style of religion and we'll just take what we want and most people would tell you well Jesus he was just a really good ethical teacher anyway they don't believe he's God can I tell you a lot of Christians don't live like he's God a lot of people who call themselves Christian in this country don't live like he's God they live like he's a nice add-on to their life, but not like he's the all-encompassing master and Lord. And to be honest, that's kind of the situation that they faced in Jeremiah's day, right? Why did Israel end up in exile in the first place? Well, it was because they wanted the blessing of God without the obedience to God. That's why they ended up there, because they, they wanted to have their cake and eat it too. I never understood that phrase, really. Let's find a better one. They wanted, they wanted... Here's what they want. You know what they wanted to do? They wanted to eat donuts every day and still lose weight. I know, me too. I'm a little depressed that that doesn't work. Um, but, but that's what they wanted. They wanted this world in which they could kind of live their own sinful life down here, but then they could come to church on Saturday because that's, you know, it was a Sabbath. They, they could come to the, they'd come to the synagogue meeting on Saturday and they could give God their lip service and they would go to the temple a few times a year, get, get their absolution from their sins, you know, kill their goat, all that stuff. And, and then they would be like, oh yeah, I'm good. I'm free. Go live however I want. But then I can come back to church and get forgiven on Sunday. I'm, oh wait, that was us, not them. You see what I'm saying though? Same problem in the church. A lot of Christians today live that way. Just kind of go live like hell, come to church on Sunday, get all cleaned up, think we're going to be good with God. That's why they were in exile. When we think of the reason that Israel be, is, was in exile is because they were giving God lip service, but their hearts weren't following their lip service, that ought to scare some American Christians. And, and, and I'm not saying scare in the sense of like you should be afraid that God is going to, you know, somehow like, like hit you with a lightning bolt from heaven. Like, he's not Zeus. This isn't Hercules. I mean, here's the thing. Like, and, and the, the, the powerful thing for us as believers is we have the gospel. Christ already died for our sins. We just have to embrace his death in our place, repent of our sins, and follow Jesus. But so many of us aren't living that way. 
And because they weren't living that way, they went into exile. Here's the problem. Their flavor, they didn't taste like salt anymore. They, they didn't taste like God. They, they just tasted like the rest of the world. Remember the reason Israel demanded a king is because they just wanted to be like all the other nations around them. And that mindset continued on. There, now, I, there was always a remnant of people who were faithful to God. But, uh, and that remnant eventually turned into the church. It's, it's kind of cool. But uh, Jesus took the remnant in his day and he trained them up. And then he sent them out, and some Gentiles were saved through them. And, and, and so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of connection points there to the remnant in the church today. But, but here's the deal. God, God sent Israel into exile because they had lost the flavor. They were not good salt anymore. And, and, and God didn't do it to spite them. It was, it's not like God was like, well, you guys were bad kids, so time to go to time out. No. The point of the exile was, was God wanted to put them in a pressure cooker because he thought maybe under hardship they'll turn back to him and they'll remember him and they'll worship him. He says, no, when it was easy, you couldn't do it. But now maybe when it's hard, maybe you will. Maybe you'll turn to me. And so it was for their own good. When I apply rubbing alcohol to my daughter's sore, it's because I love her. She doesn't understand that. When I tell my son, don't put scissors in the outlet, it's because I love him. It's not because I'm trying to be restrictive of my son. He's done it, by the way. Thank God it had rubber handles, you know. Like we learned a lesson, you know. I would have, my kid would have looked like Doc Brown from, from Back to the Future if, 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 he, if it wasn't the rubber handles. Yeah, we had a kid, we had a, I'll just have to, I have to stop and tell the story. We had a kid when I was in elementary school who did that and like blew a breaker and shut the whole half of the school down. Um, and I still to this day remember that kid was a legend because we all got to miss out on a part of school because of him. But anyway, but uh, there, there's, you know, when God's, when God puts discipline on his children, it's not because he doesn't like them. It's not because he's trying to restrict them and, 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 and he's like some, you know, killjoy who doesn't want you to have any fun. Oh, I can't sleep with whoever I want. God, you're so restrictive, you know, or, or like, 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 oh God, I, I have to love my neighbor, but he's a jerk. You're so restrictive. You know, I mean, there's all these things, like these prescriptions God gave us. You know what they're, they're designed to do? Turn us away from ourselves back to him because Adam and Eve reached out and grabbed the fruit and they turned away from God and it's destroyed everything. It's ruined it all. Every time we do something self-centered, all we're doing is we're taking another bite of the fruit and it just ruins it a little more. And so for our own good, God is saying, no, stop living that way. You've got to turn your heart to me. That's the only place you're going to find life. God knows what's good for us. And so he sent them into exile because they had lost their flavor. But here's the other thing. It gets even worse because then they have all these false prophets coming in and they're listening to them. After Jeremiah had said time and time again, you're going to go into exile. You need to just do it willingly. In fact, if you go willingly, it's going to go well for you. If you don't, it's not going to go well for you. And they still fought and they fought and they fought. And they start, you know, these false prophets come up. In verses 8 and 9, he tells us, you know, you know, those guys are lying to you. They're not telling you the truth. They're actually going to destroy you. You know, we've got a lot of false preachers in our day too. A lot of false preachers who are telling, telling us essentially, hey, you can go ahead and build a kingdom in this world just like Adam dreamed. 
but you can still have Jesus on the side. I don't know about you, but my gospel tells me that either I'm all Christ or I'm nothing. These guys wanted a world where God was conformed to their image rather than them being conformed to God's image. And a lot of people today still want that exact same thing. We want to tame God where I can still have all of the American dream I always wanted and, and, and still have Jesus. That's what the prosperity gospel is, by the way. It's, it's, it's a gospel that tells me that I can, I can have one foot in this world but also have the other foot in the kingdom. It doesn't work like that. We're all in or we're all out. We don't, we don't get to be a little, bit of, a little bit worldly and a little bit Christian. And th- so there's so many things, and, and there's so many things and where, where we even use our religion just like they did to try and find an excuse, even in religion, not to obey Jesus fully. And God won't have it. He shows... And and by the way, he shows us clearly that while Jesus, I have to go back a little bit, Jesus showed us in what he did for us on the cross that he would fully reject this concept of living in a way that was contrary to who God is. And so if we're in Christ, it's possible for us too to persevere. And, and, and to live holy lives in spite of all the world around us. He shows us clearly that it may not be in our power to avoid the sin of the world, but it is in his power. And, and so if we're in him, we can overcome the temptation to capitulate, to follow after the world. But, but what about, so that's, that's a salt that becomes a different kind of flavor. It starts to taste like the world. But what about the salt that is stored away? Because that was the temptation, right? Because in, in, in verses 4 through 7, Jeremiah says, hey, no, hang on. You got to go build houses over here. You got to go marry over here. You got to give your sons and daughters in marriage. Man, that, that, was, a, that was a concept they were really going to struggle with. Because remember, those Babylonians... Those were some nasty people. Those were, those were the dirty sinners over there. And we're the holy, pure bride over here. But God planned to use Israel's time in Babylon to teach them radical obedience, but also to preserve Babylon. A couple things are going on here. Why would God send his people into this foreign land? Well, Maybe because in his grace, God wanted to try and save some people over there. And, and you know, a lot of scholars believe that, that those, those Jews that were in Israel on the day of Pentecost to hear the word preached by the apostles, which, by the way, I still think it's amazing the first thing they did after receiving the Holy Spirit is preach the gospel, which tells me maybe it's not the last thing we should do. But anyway, um, he, they... Many of those believers from across the world, a lot of scholars believe they were, they were direct, the direct result of the ministry of Daniel and Jeremiah and, Nehemiah, and uh, later on, of course, Ezra and Nehemiah, but, but uh, um, Ezekiel 
Habakkuk. These, these preachers during that era who preached the word and then the Christians, or they were Jews, but you know what I mean, proto-Christians, who stood up and they said, hey, we're not going to bend our knees to this government. We're going to stand for God and we're going to live for him in the midst of this broken world. And a lot of people saw what they were doing and they thought, wow, that's, that's powerful and that's real. Like I need some of that. And a lot of a lot of people became Jewish proselytes in Babylon and, and later on in the Greek world as that it was conquered by Alexander and, all, you know, and the Romans and all those things. A lot of people became Jewish proselytes who weren't native-born Jews because of this exile. You think God knows what he's up to? Many, many people were saying they shouldn't engage uh, with the host culture. But God said otherwise. He said their welfare, the welfare of his people, was tied up with the welfare of the Babylonians. The same is true for us in America. I know it's hard for us sometimes as, as believers living in this broken world, okay? And trust me, I get upset too when I watch the news. I try not to even do that anymore. <laughs> you know, some days it's like, ugh, I just get, I, I can't watch the polarizing, you know, media. I just can't do it. Like I, I'd rather read the newspaper these days because at least then I feel like it's a little, a little better maybe. But you know, there's, there's, there's so many opinions and there's so much wickedness and there's so many wicked leaders in our nation. And, and I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I just feel like I want to go hide. Like buy a shack on a mountain in Colorado and move my family there and do the whole Tom Hanks from Castaway, like big beard, maybe even befriend a volleyball. I don't know. Like I just want to get away, you know. I want to get away and, and hide from the world. I feel like that sometimes. And I think they were feeling that way. And, and, and the Lord said, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to be a part of the culture. You're going to immerse yourself into that culture. Again, it's so easy for us to hide away in our churches creating Christianized versions of cultural organizations and everything we see out there. We have our Christian music. We have our Christian movies. We have all of our Christian things. And it's really easy as a believer in today's world to go throughout our days and not even have a conversation, a real meaningful conversation with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, let alone become their friend and immerse ourselves into a place where we might actually get to know them and become a part of the same social circle as them. You know why I think the church isn't reaching many people today? It's because not many Christians have any friends that don't know Jesus. If we were salt and properly applied, then more people would be hearing the gospel through our lives. And I'm going to tell you, they're not beating down the doors of our churches, are they? No, the lost world, they're out there. It's not like the Babylonians were showing up in the land of Israel and going to the temple to the priest and be like, what must we do to be saved, sirs? They weren't. So in order for God to save some people in Babylon, he had to send some reluctant Jewish missionaries into Babylon. And I believe that he wants us to impact our culture in a similar way to the way that they were called to impact that culture. Now the difference is we are natural-born Americans, right? Most of us. Not all of us, but a lot of us in this room. Are, we are. We were, this is our home country. We were born and raised here. I was born and raised in this city. I, I, you know, I, I was born in Mercy Hospital. I, we lived across from Wiley Post Airport when I was first born. And then my parents, you know, built the house by Lake Overholzer, and they're still over there. And, like, this is home for me. This is 
I haven't gone very far, you know, um, just kind of here, Bethany, the, the greater Bethany Metroplex. And, um, and, and the reality is, man, God has called me and you and all of us to find out what it looks like to be in the world, but not stained by the world. I can't help but to go back to Jesus' high priestly prayer. Because he prayed to the Father, Father, do not take them out of the world, but rather protect them from the evil one. I wonder sometimes, we're so afraid that we might get stained by this world. Do we believe the Holy Spirit's actually able to keep us saved? If we're on mission, if we're out around people who are broken and dirty and marginalized, Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. And the religious people of his day did not like him very much because of that. They're like, ooh, did you hear who Jesus had dinner with last night? <laughs> you know? But what are we more concerned about? Doing God's will and seeing people come to know him? or what the world might think of us, or what religious people might think of us, or are we just afraid that we won't be able to overcome the brokenness around us, we'll get sucked into it? If, if that's true, we probably need more discipleship, one. But, but also, we need to understand we can trust the Holy Spirit. He will keep you saved if you're truly in Christ. So we, we don't want to be like salt that's been stored away. God didn't allow that for the Jews in, in, in that day, and he doesn't allow it for us either. I think he would tell us the same thing he told Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the city to which I've sent you. Okay, you live in Oklahoma City, you live in Bethany, War Acres, you live in, you know, you live in Yukon, you live in the village, you live somewhere, you, you, you live in this northwest side of Oklahoma City, okay, seek the welfare of that place to where I've planted you. Because... Our well-being is tied up with the well-being of this city. So what, is, what does that look like? I, I don't know what it looks like for you, but one thing I'm certain of is there are organizations out there that are not Christian organizations, and they're being driven by really broken people. And maybe it's time for us as believers to get more involved and speak the gospel truth into those things. Instead of always creating our own little subculture, you know, subculture things around, maybe we ought to get involved with things in this world and do our best to season those things with salt so that the gospel can go out. If those people, if the, if the lost and broken people aren't coming to us, then maybe we got to go to them if we want to see people come to know Christ. So good salt, let's, this is the last thing we're going to look at. What's the good salt look like? Good salt is both pure and it's well applied to that which is, it is designed to preserve. That's an important term. Jesus said, you are the salt of what? Salt of the earth, salt of the world. There are different ways that's translated, but it's the same idea. You're the salt of the world. So what are you designed to preserve? The world. And so if we keep ourselves always in the shaker, how are we going to preserve what's rotting around us? When we do what God has called us to do, the result, by the way, is blessing. That's what the last part of this passage is about. Verses 10 through 14 is about blessing. Here's what God essentially says to them. He says, listen, 
if you obey me, if you go into this land and you do what I've told you, 70 years are going to pass. But if you're faithful at the end of that, I will bless you. I will bring you back. I will restore what was taken from you. And it's going to be well with you. Right? We all know this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. Maybe someone in this room who has it tattooed on them. I don't know. But this is, this is one of those verses. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Listen, people love to quote this scripture like it's some kind of fortune cookie for Christians, you know? Like, like, like you crack it open and there it is. Oh, look, sweet. Good things for me, you know? But, but, but people don't understand. This is a promise predicated on repentant obedience. God says, I know the plans I have for you, but you got to follow me. Right? Paul tells us this, you know, really, Paul basically tells us the same thing. All things work together for good for those who love Christ and are called according to his purposes. But the key here is we got to actually love Jesus. Our hearts actually have to be turned to him. God didn't say, hey, Here's the good news. You're going to go into exile, but I'm going to bless you regardless. Do whatever you want. It's all going to be fine. No, he didn't say that. He said, I'm sending you into exile, and I want to see you live repentant lives and actually obey me, unlike what you were doing back there when you were in your homeland. I want to see you actually submit your heart to me. And then if you do, I know the, I know the plans I have for you. My plans are to bless you. My plans are for your welfare. My plans are to bring about good things for you. But you realize you can interrupt God's plans by being disobedient to him. The one who conquers, Jesus says in Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with the Father on his throne. Listen, God promises us that everyone who perseveres to the end is going to be saved. That's a similar promise to what he gave Israel, isn't it? Because he said to them, if you will obey me these 70 years and you'll do what I say, I will restore you. And I'll listen to you when you pray. And you'll be blessed. I tell you, God's telling us the same thing. If you persevere in Christ, in spite of this world that I've sent you into, in spite of this broken city you live in, if you persevere in Christ and you do my work and you follow me and you trust in the Holy Spirit, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Paul writes in Galatians. If you pursue me and follow Jesus, you have a place at the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's cool. He says in, in, in Revelation 12, 11, and they, and they have conquered him, talking about the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. That's what it means to follow Christ. It means that we lay our lives down and we pursue him with everything that we are in this world. And we're about his business. We're about the Father's business. And that is to see as many people around us come to know the message of the gospel as possible. 
And, and you know, something today I was praying about this morning, you know, like I, I get spiritual in the shower. I don't know about you guys. I just do. I think it's the rain, you know, like the feeling of the water on me. It makes me think of rain. It just, um, but I was just thinking about like how if we as, as, as followers of Christ, if we really believe the Holy Spirit truly saves people, and it's just our job to get the gospel out in front of them and let the Spirit do His work. Wouldn't we have more faith just to put that gospel out there? So oftentimes, we're just relying on, on tactics. Maybe we, can, maybe we can make the gospel a little more palatable to people. No, we can't. It's hard. And so we just proclaim it. And the Holy Spirit is the one who makes it palatable because he's the one who renews somebody's heart and grants them the, the grace that they might have the faith to believe. That's not our job. We're not the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit and we're called to proclaim. So today, we've really seen two things that we must avoid and one thing that we must pursue relentlessly. And the two things we must avoid, we must avoid being like the world rather than like Christ. It was the biggest mistake that the Jews made and what led them to go into exile. But the second thing is we must avoid hiding from the world, and that was their great temptation while they were in exile. They wanted to hide. But God said, no, no, you're going to be a part of this society. You're going to season this society because you're my salt, and I've sent you into it. You're not staying in the shaker, Israel. Can I say, church, I think he's saying the same thing to us. We got to stop staying in the shaker. We got to sprinkle ourselves out all over this world so that the gospel can go forward through us. We must join Jesus in his mission to saturate the world. This is the thing we got to do, by the way. I got to say that. This is the thing we must do. We must join Jesus in his mission to saturate the world with the gospel and his goodness by being present in a world that as a, and we've got to be a bold preservative, even when it's difficult and even when it's not wanted. And even if the world views us as the dad coming with hydrogen peroxide when there's a boo-boo. But we still have to do it. We still must pursue these things because it's what we are called to do. When Jesus said in his great commission, therefore go and make disciples, understand the, very, the first thing in the great commission he says is we must proclaim this message. Therefore go. Make disciples. Proclaim. You've got to proclaim the truth. And then we baptize them as they respond in faith. And then we disciple them. These things all go together. You can't have one without the rest. So I want to be clear that we can't do this in our own strength. I'm not trying to pretend like we can somehow muster up the courage and the strength to do this. We can't. We cannot do this in our own strength. It's just like... Jesus said in Revelation, we overcome by faith in Christ and what he has done for us. We're overcoming by trusting in him, not by somehow pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We must fully lean into Jesus through prayer, through the regular engaging with the scriptures, through the regular attendance at the church gathering because here through spiritual gifts in the word we encourage and equip one another as paul said in ephesians chapter 4 the the spiritual gifts the five-fold ministry of the church is designed to equip the church for the work of ministry you know a lot of christians struggle to do the ministry because they're not well equipped and and, and they're not well equipped because we're not dispensing our spiritual gifts into one another and also 
a lot of Christians just don't think it's worth it to show up to church. You know, church attendance has declined by 40% since coronavirus. That's ridiculous of people who were previous church attenders. What are we doing? If you're watching this online and you haven't been watching, at least watching a church service and trying to engage with the church, what are you doing if you call yourself a Christian and you're not engaging with the church? I understand not everybody can be present right now because of COVID. But let's find a way to somehow be a part of the body. The Bible says let's not to, that we're not to forsake the assembly. How do we do this? Let's get creative. Find ways. But let's not drop off the face of the earth and say, okay, well, we'll come back whenever, whenever things get normal again, because you won't. Where are you today? Are you a Christian who has lost the flavor of Jesus that's supposed to be on you? Then, then here's what I would call you to do today. I, I say to you, return to him and be renewed today. Peter told the Jews in his first sermon in Acts, repent and believe the gospel so that times of refreshing may come. Listen, I know this, that God loves you. And if you earnestly turn away from your sins and toward Jesus, God's not going to leave you hanging. There are people out there who think that they're so broken that God can't accept them. Do you really think that God's grace is not good enough for you? He's ready to receive you if you're ready to turn to him. Are you a Christian who's been hiding because you're afraid of the world? I say to you, engage the world that, that Christ might preserve the world through you. And by the way, if you never wring out a sponge, it starts to get stinky. And if you don't ever use salt, eventually it expires. If you're always filling yourself up with God's word, but you're never wringing it out on, any, out on anybody else, you're going to get toxic. I've seen it happen in a lot of people who know a lot about God, but their lives just don't match up. And then the third person, are you a person who has never turned away from yourself and believed in Jesus so that you might be saved? Maybe you're holding on because you think, well, I just got to do more before God will accept me. Again, do you not believe that God's grace is good enough for you? Maybe you're the kind of person who's, who's thinking, well, I just got to, you know, I, I, um, that, that stuff's all good and everything, but, you know, I just, I just got to go, I just got to do it my way. Do you really think that you're so good that you don't need God's grace? I think this morning, uh, and, and to you, I forgot, to you who have not yet turned to Christ, I say to you, come to him today and receive the salvation from sin and death, which he won for you by dying on the cross. You've been listening to the New Covenant Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If God spoke to you, or if you'd like us to pray for you, you can email Pastor Nick directly at nick at newcovenantokc.org. If you'd like more information about our church, you may visit us on the web at newcovenantokc.org. We can't wait to hear from you.